0: After God had carried us safe to New England and we builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and to perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Signed, New England's First Fruit. Now, I promise that I don't normally take a poll or ask people to raise hands during a sermon, but I'm just curious, does anyone know where this uh, sentence or two came from? I'm not surprised if you don't. This is on a marble plaque that stands on a gate outside of Harvard University. You may be surprised at that. About a year ago, I had the opportunity to go on a study tour through New England. Uh, New England has a lot of rich history in Christianity. Uh, We visited places like Whitfield's Rock. Uh, George Whitfield was an Anglican uh, priest who came to New England and preached on this giant rock to thousands of people, um, saw the church where he is buried under a pulpit. We visited Northampton which is where the famous scholar and theologian Jonathan Edwards pastored for so many years. But we also visited each one of the Ivy Leagues, not all of them, but many of them. And what's interesting to know is that most of those schools were started as seminaries. They started as places to train pastors. And what struck me is Harvard was created to train pastors, and it wasn't very many years until they had to establish Yale because Harvard had gotten too liberal. And now when I say liberal, I'm not talking politics. Um, for the entire entirety of this sermon, when I say liberal or conservative, I'm talking theology. Um, so liberal theology was this idea, and there's a spectrum that people would be on, the idea that scripture is not inerrant, it is not sufficient. Um, other worldviews, such as Marxism and things like that, should be incorporated into the church. Um, Doctrine can be fluid. There are many ways to God. There's just a long spectrum. Conservative, on the other hand, is the idea that inerrancy and sufficiency is scripture, uh, that God is the divine author. It is all God-breathed. We affirm orthodoxy, or the early church creed. So from the early church, people have set out, this is what it means to be a Christian. You have to be within these bounds, is orthodoxy. And so that is the conservative view. So within a few years of the establishment of Harvard, Yale had to be created. And it wasn't very many years after Yale until Princeton Seminary had to be created because Yale had become too theologically liberal. Princeton had a pretty good run. I think it went 100 years or so. And in the early 1900s, a group of men left Princeton and created Westminster Seminary, which still operates today. So why is this important? It should help us understand that it is what we believe is important, very important. Um, even within our own um, convention, we have to keep a close eye on our doctrine. You may or may not know of something called the conservative resurgence. So from 1960 to 1990s, the SBC was just riddled with liberal theology. Uh, Professors within seminaries didn't hold to the historicity, historicity of the text. In other words, that the Bible wasn't historically accurate. They didn't believe things like that Moses had written uh, the Pentateuch. And we see this in other denominations as well. The PCUSA, which is the mainline Presbyterian uh, convention, they had a split, and the conservative pastors left. And so now we have two Presbyterian denominations PCUSA, PCA. Same thing with the Episcopal. We have a friend that. Uh, ministers in the ACNA, which is the conservative Episcopalian denomination, and then there is the other one. And we see what's going on with the Methodists even last year. Well, we struggle with the same thing, but unlike those denominations, through God's providence, we turned back. The SBC turned back to a conservative view. So that now, men and women who go and train there for missionaries, pastors, well, men as pastors, uh, can receive a solid, conservative theological education. And if you don't think this matters for you, this is just education, this is Harvard, this is Yale, this is seminaries. Like I just said, the pastors that were trained in these establishments came to the churches. So what happens in the seminary will come to the church. So it's important. And there are still traces of this liberalism today. In 2000, when the SBC ratified, or whatever the correct terminology is, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, there was actually a man who stood up in the congregation, held up his Bible, and said, this is not God's word. So if you don't think, you think this is far removed, or you think it's not a big deal, I would encourage you to reconsider. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul charges a young pastor to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to him. The church is to cherish the good gifts we have received from a holy and a perfect God. Treasure them. So in today's sermon, we are going to continue walking through 1 Peter, but I'm also going to highlight a lot of doctrine. Because as I was studying through this text this week, I said, you know, if, if, if we don't have this doctrine that's behind this text straight, we're going to be in trouble. So we're going to highlight a lot of doctrine today, and we're going to continue to walk through 1 Peter, a text that we should cherish from God. 1 Peter in a series we call The Marrow of the Christian Faith, as I've said before, it is a circular letter. It is written to several churches. It's not just written to one. It is written to remind it a persecuted church that they are to stay the course, that they are to press on. It is how they should live in a larger, unbelieving society, something that should resonate with us this week. They are strangers. They do not belong, which is a point that Peter is going to make in today's text. Many churchmen and scholars throughout history have said that 1 Peter is a concise explanation of the Christian faith and of Christian ethics, the marrow of the Christian faith. In the verses prior to today's passage, we have read that we are foreordained to salvation from the Father, set apart by the Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Christ, that we are kept by God. He has caused us to be born again, that our salvation is of such value that Old Testament prophets and angels long to look into it, that we will be tested, and that we are to live life in light of eternity. We were saved to obedience, that we must be sober, we must be prepared, we must strive to live a holy life in all of our conduct. We must actively kill sin. So continuing on, turn with me to First Peter. We are going to study chapter or verses 17 and into chapter 2, but I am going to start reading with chapter 16, or verse 16. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The new life that has been granted to you by an unchanging God is one to be cherished. In this text, we will see three points. Cherish the blood of Christ by which you were ransomed. Cherish your place in the church, for this is the family of God. And cherish the enduring word of the one true and living God. First, cherish the blood of Christ by which you were ransomed. I'm just going to read verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one deeds, each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Oftentimes, in evangelicalism, when we read the word fear, or hear the word fear, people kind of water it down to respect because they don't want to be offensive to non-believers. They downplay it. But if we take this approach, if we downplay the fear of God to respect, we lose sight of who God is, what God is like. And so I want to go through a few of the attributes of God. First of all, God is holy. And he's not just holy, he's holy, 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 right? In Jewish culture, if you want to to emphasize something, you repeat it. So that's why when Paul says in Galatians, if anyone comes to you with another gospel other than the one that I have delivered to you, let him be accursed, and he repeats it, it's almost like Paul's putting an exclamation mark behind what he's saying. Well, when you take something to the third level, that's like a line of exclamation marks in all caps. So God is holy. He is set apart. He's not just a better being. He's another being altogether. He's not just a super, like, us, but way better but he is wholly and totally different from us. He is a which is a Latin word, which basically means he is from himself. He doesn't need anything, including us. A needy God is not God. He is self-sufficient. He is the creator of everything. He's immutable. Malachi 3 tells us that the Lord God does not change. If he could change, that means that either he wasn't perfect before or he's not perfect now, but he's always perfect because he's God. An imperfect God is not God. We as human beings are becoming. He is the same. He is unchanged. He is unmoved. He is simple. That sounds kind of funny to call God simple in our culture, right? Because we don't think that that is a good thing. But what it means is he's not made of parts. He's not as though he's 90% love and 10% wrath. A God that's made of parts is going to be dependent on those parts, and God is not dependent on anything. Even the Trinity are not three parts. It's not the Father part, the Son part, and the Holy Spirit part like a pie graph, but it is three persons sharing one divine essence, and each person of the one God wholly shares every attribute. Oftentimes in our culture, we like to talk about God's wrath. I mean, no, we like to talk about God's love, but not His wrath. But the cross, we see both, don't we? We see that a holy God, sin cannot stand in his presence, and it must be paid for. And because of God is love, he provided that payment. One of the illustrations that I really like is from the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you read C.S. Lewis. We read it. We're almost done with all of them with our kids. we got two books left. Um, But one of the best illustrations of God, I think, um, is in The uh, Lion, of Witch, and Wardrobe, and Lucy is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And I can't remember which one she's talking to. It was Mr. Beaver or Mrs. Beaver. But they haven't met Aslan yet. And if you haven't read it, Aslan is this Jesus-type character. It's an allegory for the Christian faith. Um, so you could take it to the extremes. It's not Bible. Um, but it helps us understand. And Lucy says to Mr. Beaver, we'll go with him, Aslan's a lion. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver turns back to her and says, well, of course he's not safe. He's a lion, dear. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. And that helps us understand somewhat of God is. He is not tame. We have not tamed him. He is God. He is of himself. And sin cannot stand in his presence. I was talking with a brother this week about some of these things, and he rightly said, sometimes when you talk about wrath of God, people hear their earthly father's. And I can simplify with that. Um, Some some of you know, I did not come from a good household. Uh, I ended up living with my grandparents at some point. But the problem is, is we reject liberal theology. The Bible must dictate our understanding of God, not our personal experience. Let God dictate who he is. He is not a created God. He is not of our own liking. When you are tempted to believe something false about God, because of an emotional experience. Emotions happen. I got that. Go to the Bible. See what God says about himself. Yeah. Go to him for truth. An illustration, and, and if you're worried that I might use you as an illustration one day, I asked Ben ahead of time. I don't know where he's at. Maybe he's back there somewhere. There he is. I asked Ben ahead of time if I could use him for an illustration. So imagine if I came to you and I said, yeah, I know Ben Edwards. He's five foot two. He's a vegetarian." He really enjoys polka music, and he rides a unicycle across town. You guys would say, yeah, that's not Ben at all. And if I said, well, how dare you? That's my Ben. That's how I believe Ben is. Like, you're, you're going to think I'm nuts, right? And it's the same way with God. Now, it's not that you have to know everything about God. You don't have to be a doctorate of divinity to be a Christian. It's that when you learn you are thinking wrongly about God from his word, you change your mind and conform it to what he says about himself. And with that being said, God is infinite. We are finite. And the finite can never fully grasp the infinite. If you can fully grasp a being, if I, could, I can fully grasp this pencil, but this pencil is not God. And if you can fully grasp a being, I promise you that being is not God. All we know about him is what he has chosen to reveal to us. So if you ever think you have God pinned in a corner, one, that's not God, and two, you will cease to fear him. But also, on the other extreme, is the idea that you can put God in a box by knowing his attributes from the Bible. So when someone pops up and say that they reject our idea of God from Scripture and say that we are putting him in a box, you can not worry about that at all. What God has chose to reveal about himself is true. We will never fully grasp him, but we can grasp what he has told us in his word. So, circling back to verse 17, that's kind of a long rabbit trail, but I promise you it was worth it. We do not live in a constant, terrified state of God, but it's more than a watered down respect. We have a healthy fear that drives our conduct. Like the operator that works in a nuclear reactor, we do not play with a holy God. Think of the Old Testament. When Moses is confronted with God, what did he do? He's on his face. When Joshua runs into what I believe is a, pre- a pre-incarnate Jesus, that warrior, what does he do? He falls on his face in like Joshua 2, I believe. And Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is confronted with a holy God in the temple, what does he do? Does he say, oh great, I got some questions for you? Does he call him his buddy? No, he covers his ears and he screams and says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. Even in the New Testament, think about Peter. When they're fishing and Jesus tells them to cast down his nets and they bring up all the fish, what does Peter do? Does he say, ha, we're about to make some money, I got you with me now. No, what does he do? He says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He's terrified. Because God is holy and we are not, We need a holy advocate. We need a holy intercessor. Look with me at verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You were ransomed. The Bible speaks of all of us being born dead in sin in Ephesians 2. Romans 3.23 says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. In Isaiah, we see that we have all been scattered like sheep. If you struggle with the doctrine of depravity, I would encourage you just to read the news in the last two weeks. Mankind is a fallen, fallen race. We are needed to be ransomed. Now, in the first century, you can read in the backgrounds of New Testament Christianity several different um, ideas of buying a slave out of um, slavery. I think uh, all of them are good to think of us as slaves who have been bought by Christ. And we were not bought with money, but we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We were slaves to sin and death, and we were bought out of that by the blood of Christ. A doctrine called penal substitutionary atonement. In atonement, in the Old Testament, there must be shedding of blood. So often what we see is the hand of the person who was guilty is laid on the animal, and then the animal receives the guilt of that person and receives the punishment as well. And in atonement, three things happen. God's righteous wrath is satisfied, sin is cleansed, and there is restoration of fellowship with God. Again, God's righteous wrath is satisfied, sin is cleansed, and there's restoration of fellowship with God. And what we know and what we see in the New Testament is that Christ accomplished in reality what every single sacrifice in the Old Testament accomplished in type. You say that again. Christ accomplished in reality what every other sacrifice accomplished in type. He truly ransomed us from slavery. He brought us back into restoration with the Father. His wrath was satisfied and sin was cleansed through God and through Jesus' sacrifice. Looking at verse 19, the end of it, it says, without blemish or spot. Gets us into another doctrine called impeccability. And it's not just that Christ did not sin, friends. He could not sin. He lived and breathed in a world of temptation, but that temptation never had a landing pad in his heart. So when you hear people say that Jesus struggled with homosexuality, no, he did not. Jesus could be in a room with a beautiful woman and never think an impure thought. Amen. He honored God the way man was intended from the beginning. Being holy, he is true humanity in a way us and our fallen state cannot be. He is impeccable. He is perfect. Leon Morris, a commentator, states that Jesus felt the full weight of temptation... But those who give in to sin do not experience the full force of temptation. Only those who do not give in experience the full force. Sin never had a landing pad in Jesus' heart during his earthly ministry. He was true humanity, yet he was fully man, yet fully God. Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is Emmanuel. You remember that verse, Emmanuel, which means God with us. If he is not God, he is not God with us. In the gospel, Jesus performs acts that only the Father did in the Old Testament. So if you were raised up in Judaism and you read through the gospels, these would have jumped off the page at you. You'd have said, wait a minute, only God does that. Only God says those things because Jesus is God. The demons, supernatural beings, knew who he was and was terrified. When Jesus walked into a synagogue and there was a demon-possessed man there, what did the demons do? they go, oh, that Jesus guy? No, they were like, whoa, what are you doing here? Stay away, it's not time. Those kind of things. Jesus was worshipped, something that would be pure idolatry if he was not God. And in the New Testament epistles, we read that Christ is exalted over all things, that the fullness of the Father dwelled in him that there is nothing outside of his control. He is sovereign over the angels, Hebrews 1, that he is a slain lamb who is worshiped in heavens, in the heavens and the throne rooms, Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He was worshiped, which is idolatry, if he is not God. Matthew Barrett, professor of theology at Midwestern, uh, a man that I studied under, says this, Sin against an infinite God cannot be atoned for by a Savior who has emptied himself of his divine attributes. No, it is his divine attributes that qualify him to make atonement in the first place. Friends, if you have a theology that does not believe Jesus is and has always been God, you are in trouble. Only the God-man Jesus can reconcile you to the Father. For 2,000 years of church history, the church has lashed herself to this truth. And I pray that you do as well, for it is essential for Christianity. High Christology will lead to holy worship. Worship, honoring God. And Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, deserves the highest worship and honor that we have. Verse 20 foreknown from the foundation of the earth. Again, this is covenantal language. In a covenant, we can think of marriage. So I am currently in a covenant with Sarah McElroy, right? We have a covenant together. And so when we talk about this knowing, it is a covenantal language. So think chosen, think loved. So if you take a stance that the father merely knew, like if you had a mind or analytical sense that Jesus would come one day, then you have accidentally just fallen into error. Because Jesus has always existed. The Father did not just comprehend the Son, but he loved the Son. In the same way he chose Israel and referred to Israel as God's Son, he loved the true Israel, the true and greater Son, Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 18. Made manifest in the flesh. need to just keep my Bible open here. Made manifest in the flesh in these last days. Reminding us, just like Mark 1. That Jesus came to earth, he ushered in the last days. We are in the last days currently. When Jesus came to earth, it's like D-Day. Yesterday was D-Day, right? When Jesus came to earth, Jesus broke the back of the enemy. Mm-hmm. Broke the back of the enemy on the cross. And right now we're just mopping up. Yep. We're just fighting hedge row to hedge row, but the war is won. Mm-hmm. Friends, Jesus has won the war. Hmm. Verse 21, through him you are believers in God. Now, we live in a time and a place where plurality rules the day. Uh, when I served for a short time as an army, army chaplain, man, you see this plurality stuff everywhere. Supposedly, there are many ways to God, but the book of Hebrews tells us that it is only through union with Christ, through his flesh, through his blood, that you can boldly come before the Father. He is the only way. Through Christ, you are believers in the Father. Christ raised, Father raised Christ, On the third day, after walking a perfect life and drinking the cup of God's righteous wrath that only he could drink, he bore our sins. Jesus was buried and then walked out of a tomb three days later alive. He ascended into heaven and is currently at the right hand of the Father in bodily form. He is glorified. Friend, if this is not your hope, I pray you repent and believe the gospel today. Turn from whatever tattered and deficient belief in a God of your own making and turn to the God of the Bible, the true and the living God. And since you were purchased at such a high cost, you must cherish your place in the church, for it is the family of God. Look with me at verse 23. And I wrote that down wrong. Look with me at verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So though we are aliens as Christians, we are pilgrims. We're not pilgrims alone. We are pilgrims together. We have the church. We have the body of Christ. So again, thinking of doctrine and stuff, Mark Dever, who is pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and SBC Church in Washington, D.C., writes, the church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving in this world. So there's two, I guess, elements, I don't know if that's the right word, of the church. First, there's the church universal. So that's all Christians everywhere. Everybody who believes in Jesus, the church. And then there is the local church, which is, a group of believers who have covenanted together. So there's that covenant language again. I'm in a covenant with Sarah McElroy. Um, as the church, we covenant together. We come together. Whitecliffe Church is a local Southern Baptist church, which means we do or should hold to historic Baptists' distinctives. I'm going to briefly explain a few of those. First is Regenerate Church Membership. So the local church's membership is comprised of those who give credible evidence that they have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. This is a Baptist distinctive. Um, we are responsible for those we allow into the church. Now you can never know fully, I've got that, that's usually a common argument, but you can generally tell if someone generally is trusting Christ, if they know the gospel, if their life reflects that. So regenerate covenant membership, regenerate church membership, a covenant together and with that is accountability. Since we have covenanted together, Baptists believe in holding each other accountable for our Christian walk and for restoring fallen brothers and sisters to full reconciliation with Christ and with the church. Last week, we talked about Matthew 18, right? And this is ethics and doctrine. So if we know someone is not living in a Christian way, or maybe if they're holding to an unorthodox doctrine or heresy, we go to them in Christian love. So I don't know who I would want to pick on for this, so we'll say person X, And I'm person Y, and (laughs) they're they're doing something that's unchristian, or they're holding to a doctrine. And I go to them directly. I don't go to you know A B C D E F G and tell all about them, but I go directly to them and I say, brother, you're doing this thing. You can't do this. And he says, I get out of here. Well, what do you do? Well, Matthew 18 told us. Then you get a couple of other brothers and you tell them what's going on. You say, let's go talk to this guy, and you talk to him and you say, brother, you're doing this. You can't do it. And he says, y'all get out of here. Then you take it to the church. And the church doesn't, it's not like a, like a we're gonna get this guy kind of thing. It's a loving reconciliation that we're heartbroken that this brother or sister is not living the way they should or not believing the way they should and we want to see them reconciled to the church. We want to bring them back into our family because they are brothers and sisters. Accountability. Believers' baptism, it's in our name. Baptists have suffered for baptism down through church history. Baptists believe in holding each other Excuse me. We do not believe that children of Christians are in the new covenant. We believe in the newness of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, there is coming a new covenant. Uh, Hebrews 8 shows us the supremacy of the new covenant. We believe you must be born again, something that's in today's text. And so, believer's baptism is what we practice by immersion. We could talk, I could talk a lot about believer's baptism, but we must move on. Congregational polity or congregational church government. So local churches are governed by their own membership. Michael Haken writes, Christ-centered congregationalism is each local church should be ruled by Jesus Christ, governed by its members, led by its pastor elders, served by its deacons. Put more simply, Mark Dever, who I mentioned earlier, says, in a Baptist church, the pastors have the wheel, the congregation have the brake. It's a good way to think about it, and we'll talk more about that here in a minute. There is not a higher ecclesiastical authority over us, so we are autonomous. So there's not like J.D. Greer makes a a pronouncement and we're like, oh, we got to get in line with what J.D. says. We are autonomous churches. We gather together for the sake of the gospel. So looking back now at verse 22, in this verse, we see that as the church, we are to love one another with sincere brotherly love. Like, I feel like if you're doing that one, if you're loving with sincere brotherly love, like you really don't even need the other stuff I'm about to say, but just think about that. Sincere brotherly love in the church, earnestly, from a pure heart. We know that the pure in heart will see God, from Matthew. In a minute, we'll read that we must put away all slander, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, maneuvering, manipulations, backroom planning, Instead, remember that we are pilgrims together. We are in this together. We are to love one another and build one another up. We are living in a hostile environment. Again, friends, as we have seen even this week. The shepherd is the love of the sheep. The sheep are the love of the shepherd. The shepherd leads the sheep. The sheep are responsible for knowing their Bibles to know if it's a good shepherd. Third, cherish, which brings us to the third one. Cherish the enduring word of the one true and living God. Look with me at verses 23 through 2-3. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So in the next few moments, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see that all life is like grass, the word is forever, and that we should desire the word. First, verse 24, all flesh is like grass. Life is short. Life is fragile. In other places, the Bible refers to it as a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. I promise you that we will all breathe our last breath a lot sooner than we think we will. Psalm 146 states that, We are not to put our trust in man, because man will die, and with him go all of his plans. Every political candidate this year, every protester this year, will eventually go to the grave with their plans. But the word of the Lord is forever. Jonathan Edwards, um, New Englander, didn't plan this, but it kind of works with my opening uh, illustration there. Lived in the 1700s. He's Even by secular philosophy, people is called one of the greatest minds that God has ever gifted America with. He wrote this. A bubble that is blown up when it comes to be its largest of all and full of fine colors is near breaking, which is a lively image of earthly glory, which very commonly, when it has come to its height, is near its end and commonly vanishes in a moment and a proper type of men of this world who place their happiness in the things of life who when they are most swollen with worldly prosperity and are in the midst of their honors their wealth their pleasures and glory most in these do commonly die dash death dashes their glory into pieces in a moment and Ironically, this happened to him. He actually died very young after being elected president of Princeton from a botched smallpox inoculation. So instead of desiring the things that pass away, two, in verse 25, the word of the Lord is forever. I don't think you have to be around me very long to know that I love the Bible, that it is my ministry philosophy to preach the Bible. 2 Timothy states that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It is from the divine author. Everything, from Revelation to Genesis, Isaiah, everything is God-breathed. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. Psalm 19 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And Psalm 19 states that the word is perfect and that no one can find error in it. So third, desire the word of God like a baby longs for milk. Now, sometimes in Scripture, the Bible refers to like, weaker Christians as being those on milk and more mature on the, um, those who need meat. That's not what we talking about here. I read several commentaries. Every commentator says that here it's referring to all Christians, that we all are are to desire the pure, unfiltered, unadulterated, heavy milk of scripture. Not the kind of weak milk that causes sickness, but pure milk. Now, many of you in here may be parents. Um, Obviously, while I'm studying this, there's a five, six-month-old, okay, he just turned six-month-old, toddler over there on the floor, and he is one of the mildest kids we've had. He just hangs out, When he wakes up from his naps, most of the time you don't know he's awake unless you just walk by and see him in there talking to his little teddy bear or something like that. He is the mildest-mannered kid, just really chill, smiles a lot, until he's hungry. And then he turns into a pure velociraptor. I kid you not. There was one day I was holding him, I was trying to read a book, and he spotted an empty bottle on a side table, and man, he was like back arched, knocking stuff over, knocked my Bible out of my hand, knocked the bottle over. He was just trying to get to that milk. He was ready to eat. So my question to you is, do you desire God's word like that? Do you need it for survival? About these verses, Tom Schreiner writes, the evidence that one has been begotten by the Father through the Word is that believers continue to long for the Word and become mature. Friends, hear me. We need, as a church, to stop reading our Bible like you read a magazine in a doctor's office waiting room and start reading it the way a lost man in the wood reads a map. Because I promise you it is the only thing that you will read that will not pass away. This sermon, man, this sermon will pass away. One of the reasons I want to read a lot of scripture is because it's the only part of my sermon that's inerrant. It's the only part of my sermon that's going to be infallible. It's going to be when I'm reading scripture. Your social media, your Netflix, your cable, your video game, your news, your job, every single one of those things will pass away. Since I've left the military, Sarah for Father's Day bought me a shadow box. And I don't know if you know what these things are, but big boxes. You put all your different jump wings and your medals and, and patches for units I was in and all this cool stuff. And it looks really neat. It's going to pass away. It's nothing. But the word of the Lord will never pass away. As leaders, we must be faithful students of God's word. If you're here and you lead a small group, if you're here and you are a deacon, you must be faithful stewards of God's word. To use the Deborah illustration, how can I man the helm if I am not in God's word? My former pastor once told several of us interns as we're sitting around, he said, if I'm interviewing an elder candidate, it's an elder-led church, and he says, yeah, I would like to read the Bible every day, but I'm just so busy. He said, as far as he's concerned, the interview is over. Because if you are not in God's word, then being a pastor just becomes a job. It ceases to be a shepherd. It's just something you do for money if you are not just enamored and enthralled and desire the unfallible, not passing away word of God. But likewise as a congregation, I said we'd get back to it. How can you faithfully man the break in the local church when you don't know when to stomp on it? You too must be a Berean. If you're not familiar with the Bereans in the book of Acts, Paul goes and preaches to the synagogue. And what do the Bereans do? He said they were most noble. Because while he's talking about Jesus, they have opened the Old Testament and they're going, and they're fact-checking him. So you have to be in the word. It is not faithful for the church of Christ to punch the break in a local church for their preferences. If you are punching that break, it better be for scriptural reasons because the, form, the other is not true congregationalism. There must be a scriptural reason to stop. One way of putting it is you got to have on your own oxygen mask if you're going to help others. So friends, as Peter says, this is the good news that was preached to you, that Christ is our true Passover lamb, that his blood, if you are in Christ, adorns your door so that death passes over. The church is our family. You are dependent on it. When people say, I like Jesus, but I don't need the church. That is just the craziest idea to me. The New Testament knows nothing of this idea because if you are in Christ, you need the body of Christ and you need his people. God's word is forever despite our frailty. The holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, unneeding God sent his only son to bear our sins. He bears all the same attributes of the Father. He lived a perfect, truly human life and died in the place of those who the Father had gave him. I do not stand here hat in hand and plead you, plead with you to throw your lot in with Christ. I tell you what the New Testament says. Repent and believe the gospel. If you have a faulty view of God, repent of it, turn from it, and turn to the Bible. I know a lot of pastors will beg. I tell you, as God's servant from his word, you must believe this. Either he has fully taken your punishment or that cup is waiting for you in eternity. Do you cherish what has been entrusted to you? Guard the deposit. As we wrap up here, I want to talk just a few seconds about a man who cherished God's word above all, more than his comfort and status. Um, Sarah might even know who I'm going to talk to. I'll call him my church history man crush. He was a pastor named Robert Bruce. Still not sure if he was a late reformer or an early Puritan, but he was born in Scotland into um, aristocracy. He had titles. He had lands. But his family were Roman Catholic, even then in Protestant Scotland. And one day, he came to faith. um, He became convicted to be a preacher, and his mom told him, said, if you do this, if you do this thing, you give up all your titles. You give up all your lands. He said, take them. I don't care. He went to St. Andrew's uh, University, studied under John Knox, and became such a preacher that they put him in what is called the Great Kirk in Edinburgh. Which is the big church. And he actually pastored as a young man and preached to King James I of England when he was still in Scotland. And I have many of his, I accumulate a lot of his stuff and I have many of his sermons. And it's interesting that the man almost had no fear because he loved his God so much. He would be in the pulpit preaching and would turn to King James and say, And you, sir, as our leader, this is how this applies to you, and preach directly to the king, no fear. And he was doing well until. One day, King James was out on a hunting run or something and had a couple of guys killed. And he said, all of my pastors are going to say that I'm innocent of this. And Robert Bruce said, no, I won't do that. So what did James do? He banished him way up north, cold part of Scotland, like, you know, what we might call the backwoods. So here we have this man who was born aristocracy, highly educated, once preached for the king, and he's in this small little village. And what do you think he did? You think he sat around and said, oh man, woe is me no, he preached the gospel. He preached the word. And every time that he would come out of exile, because he had many friends in high places that would advocate for him, he'd do something to make James mad, and James would be like, get back up there. And he would go back to exile. There's two things that I love about this story. One is that years later, after he had died, I think 20 or 30 years, a Jesuit um, missionary, which is like a, a Catholic uh, missionary priest guy, goes to this town, and he wants to indoctrinate them into Catholicism. And he writes back to his bishop, and we have this letter, and he says, in the same way the snow won't lay around this one lake because it's so warm for so many feet, you will never, ever convert these people. Because they were so well taught by some old dead preacher, they didn't even give his name, but people know it was Robert Bruce. He sat in that village and just preached the gospel faithfully, week in and week out. And in one biographer, as I wrap up here, one biographer compares him to another guy, one of his contemporaries, and this other contemporary cave to James. And of course, like giving a mouse a cookie, James wasn't content with just that one time, but another time and another time and another time. And so when this other minister dies, he dies very poorly. He's in a big house. He didn't have to suffer. But he dies and he says, I, I, I compromised on my faith. You know, woe is me. Like he dies very poorly. But Bruce... Robert Bruce dies without a home in his daughter's house, a simple home. His daughter read Romans 8 to him as he died, and he said he was blind by then. He said, put my hand on the Bible. I want to put it on that passage. And he died well, and he said it was worth it. He cherished. He cherished the true faith. He cherished the Scripture. He cherished sound doctrine. Friends, we do not seek after new learning. We cherish ancient learning. We stand on the shoulders of our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith. It's not just Billy Graham and Paul, but Billy Graham holds hands with Martin Lowy Jones, with Charles Spurgeon, with Jonathan Edwards, with Athanasius, with all those guys all the way back, the family of God, our older brothers and sisters. As one president of Princeton Seminary once said, bragged, nothing new has ever come from this seminary saying that we hold to the original truth. I pray that you do as well. I pray that we as a church hold to sound doctrine, that we hold to the Bible. We must cherish what has been entrusted to us. We must must cherish Christ's sacrifice. We must cherish the church. We must cherish God's word, and we must cherish sound doctrine, for it is truth about the holy and living God. Would you pray with me? Well, God, you are so good. God, you are holy and just. You are eternal. You are sovereign. No one holds back your hand. Father, we praise you for this word. We praise you for this doctrine. We praise you for the church. We praise you for our brothers and sisters that have gone before us, that have laid that firm foundation, that have laid a gridwork of sound doctrine for us to follow. I pray that each one here would lash themselves to that, lash themselves to truth about you, and that you would be honored and gloried here in Ketchikan. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.